Keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodder, and we are paediatric OTs who, through this Research and Reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with. Hello, Mim, and hello to all our listeners. Welcome to episode 14, which is the second article that we're reviewing in series four and series four for those of you who are just tuning in today is neurodiversity affirming practice which is an absolute passion of mine and it's a joy to be sharing all of this with you all. I'm actually going to say what a mully, which is the Aboriginal greeting from our area. I'm sorry to the Wangang and Yangalingu people if I've got it slightly wrong. I have been practicing but Obviously, it's not my native language, so I probably have it a little bit wrong. And they uh, speak the weirdy language. And just uh, weird, weird tell language. us, Mim, where you are for people who oh, yeah. so are not I familiar. Am in Clermont in central Queensland in Australia. And the reason I decided to greet you like that, Sarah, <laughs> is I thought I'd start a new tradition for each of our episodes to use a greeting from a country where some of our listeners come from. Spotify actually tells us. We have listeners from 33 different pretty countries. pretty amazing. To go, I started with Australian because that's our most listeners. Hello, Aussies. And my greetings are going to go in order of the highest to lowest percentage of our listeners from each country. So if you want to hear your country's greeting, well, hear me butcher it at least, <laughs> the pronunciation of it, and I'm not going to try accents, but get your friends and colleagues listening so your country can be bumped up the list. Pretty amazing, Mim. I just have to pinch myself sometimes when I think that we have listeners from 33 different countries. Know, Thank you so crazy. much for everybody listening in. So the article we are reviewing today is called Autistic Peer-to-Peer Information Transfer is Highly Effective and it is from the Journal of Autism in 2020, Volume 24, Issue 7, page numbers 1704 to 1712. And it is, for those astute listeners, (laughs) the same journal and the same issue as our last episode. Normally we like to cover a variety of journals, but the last episode was an editorial and this article is just so interesting and really highlights the double empathy problem, which we've chatted about multiple times on this podcast before. And so we've chosen two from the same journal. The Journal of Autism is a very highly respected journal with an impact factor of 6.684, which is pretty huge. And remember, if you want to find out about some of the terms that we're using, such as impact factor, just head back and listen to a few of the earlier episodes and Dr. Renu answers some of those questions for you. Yes. So the authors are Dr. Catherine J. Crompton from the University of Edinburgh in the UK. She's a neuropsychologist and I'll quote a little profile she has on the University of Edinburgh's website. So she says, my research explores autistic communication and relationships. I'm interested in communication between autistic people and how that may differ from interactions between autistic and non-autistic people. This article fits right into that Perfect. profile. Yeah. And just remember, Mim, just a reminder for people that we are using person-first language in this podcast. Most people are now adopting that, but just in case anybody is tuning in, the autistic community is telling us that that's what they prefer. So on the whole, we will be using person-first language. The second author is Dr. Danielle Roper. So she's a professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Nottingham in the UK, Robin Hood country. Then the third is Dr. Claire VM Evans-Williams. She's a clinical psychologist at the Autism Academy. And that title fascinated me. So I Googled the Autism Academy and there's a great YouTube clip, which is hosted by Dr. Claire Williams. And I'll try to remember to share it in our Facebook group. Uh, But I will say, other than the clip from five years ago, I couldn't actually find anything else on it. Sure. And so they were supposed to open this site near Dundee in Scotland. And I was excited because I worked for the NHS in Dundee for a little while. And I'll say (laughs) hi to Pete's physio, who I boarded with. Hi, Janet Parkinson. And we'll have to get her on the podcast because she does passionate work with writing for the disabled. The Autism Academy sounds great. So hopefully maybe if... Dr. Claire Evans-Williams ever listens, listens. she can yes. tell us. Come and tell us about your work, Claire. Yeah. The next author is Professor Emma G. Flynn, and 
I do apologize if I get some of the professor and doctor titles incorrect, as it can be hard to work out the most up-to-date info that I get through Google. Uh, <laughs> but I believe she is the Pro Vice Chancellor of the School of Psychology in Queen's University, Belfast. Yep. And then the final author listed is Sue Fletcher Watson. She's a Professor of Developmental Psychology at the University of Edinburgh, which is the same university as the first listed author. And she's also one of the co-authors of the editorial we reviewed last episode. So it's lovely to have that link in. And you'll notice, again, for those astute listeners, no OTs tonight. And actually, that's okay because this article is really important and you'll see why we chose it as we go through, despite the fact that there's no OT authors or no OT school involved Mm. in this article at all. In terms of the clinical question, interestingly, the authors provided a regular abstract and then a lay abstract explaining the gist of the research. And it really makes the research much more accessible to non-professionals or for those of us who just want to understand it in plain <laughs> language. That was really nice, Mim. And I if think, you're for a... example, like when Dr. Anu explained something differently to me when I ask her questions than one of her fellow researchers. Yeah. If you mix those who have a PhD with an average layperson, if the PhD person spoke to that layperson like they would to a fellow doctor or professor, a lot of yes. the information would be lost. Yes. But if a layperson described the lay abstract to another layperson, I believe more information would be retained, yes. which is very relevant to this article as well. <laughs> So the researchers wanted to investigate whether there were differences in the outcomes of social communication between autistic individuals than between autistic and non-autistic individuals. And they had two main hypotheses. Number one, that information transfer would yield higher fidelity for sequences of matched pairs. So whether you were paired with an autistic person and you were autistic or you are not autistic and you are paired with a non-autistic person and that there would be poorer quality information transfer for mixed pairs of autistic and non-autistic people. And the second hypothesis they had was that self-rated rapport would be higher for matched pairs and that mixed pairs would experience lower interactional rapport. And we'll go through the definitions of rapport and how they measured that further on down the article. For the theoretical background or understanding of the problem, the authors make the link between effective information transfer and social communication skills. So the idea that to effectively communicate information, you actually have to have reasonable social communication skills. So previous research indicates that autistic people commonly have the following characteristics. Again, this is previous research. Impairment in social and communication domains restricted and repetitive behaviours, sensory perceptual features, and these first three being clinical characteristics from the American Psychiatric Association. They're also the key characteristics from the DSM-5 MIM. So when a person gets a diagnosis of autism, they're kind of the three main categories that the paediatrician or psychiatrist would look at. Yes, and the DSM-5 comes from the APA. That's right. These are from 2013, so they haven't been updated since 2013. Yes, although the DSM-5 is a little bit more current than that. And then the other ones that previous research indicates that autistic people commonly have are difficulties attributing mental states to others and difficulties identifying social cues, e.g. tone of voice, facial emotion, sarcasm, and social faux pas. I can never say that word, faux pas. Yeah. Interestingly, if you want to understand more about autism and empathy and attributing mental states to others, please listen to episode 13, where we've done a bit of a deep dive into autism and empathy. So the conclusion from that previous research says this leads to difficulties in social interaction. But the authors go on to point out that other research shows non-autistic people struggle to identify autistic mental states from a 2016 study. Yep. They struggle to identify autistic facial expressions. They often overestimate mm. the autistic egocentricity and are less willing to socially interact with autistic people. And so although non-autistic people are generally characterised as socially skilled, these skills may not these are quotes, but these skills may not be functional or effectively applied when interacting with autistic people. So this bi-directional disconnect in communication and understanding between autistic and non-autistic people has been labelled double empathy problem. And we've yep. talked about that a few times. Yeah. 
we sure have. Because we came across it in the ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder literature. So you can go back episodes five to seven, as well as our bonus episode for some discussion on this concept in that context of ADHD. We also know from this research that autistic people demonstrate less autistic traits when socialising with the same neurotype as them. And they're also, and I found this really interesting, less put off by negative first impressions. Speaking as a neurotypical person myself, I am definitely guilty of (laughs) of judging people based on a first impression. And so I thought that was really interesting research. Yeah. And again, we're talking about generalizations. There's always people potentially a little bit more forgiving um, and neurotypical people. Yep, absolutely. The authors wanted to know if some of the social communication difficulties disappeared within group interactions that is autistic to autistic and non-autistic to non-autistic. So this idea that in the past people thought that two autistic people communicating would actually compound the social communication difficulties, but they say that research is now showing it actually has the opposite effect. And the authors say that at the time of their research, there wasn't any research to test this theory, particularly no research looking at information transfer to measure communication success. And I think that's a really nice and like very practical way mm, and measurable so beautiful. way to... Yep measure communication success yeah I know I'm not a researcher because I don't think I would have thought of that no and actually it leads us beautifully Mim onto the participants and the sample size because I think the way that they've designed this study is such common sense to me right Mm. so they had a total of 72 adult volunteers that participated in the study and they had three groups of 24 out of that they had three autistic groups three allistic groups which is an alternative term for non-autistic and three mixed groups so there were some people in there that were autistic and some who were non-autistic the three groups were matched on age gender years of education and IQ with the last being measured through the WASI-2, so the Wessler Abbreviated Scale of Intelligence. And that to me sounds like it is a shorter version of the WISC. So for those of you who are familiar with neuropsych testing and all scored within the typical range of intelligence, all spoke English to a native level and none had a clinical diagnosis of social anxiety disorder. They used the autism quotient, the AQ, to determine that all non-autistic participants had a score below 32. And for autistic participants, they were either clinically diagnosed or if they self-identified, they scored above 72 on the RITVO Autism Asperger's Diagnostic Scale Revised, so the RAADSR, and scores above 65 are considered clinically significant for a diagnosis. The self-diagnosed participants also scored above 32 on the autism quotient. I have heard of the autism quotient, Mim, but I hadn't heard of the RADS R. So that's going to be a little bit of research for me to do moving forward. The other thing I love is that what the autistic community are saying collectively as a group at the moment is that if you identify as being autistic, you do not need a piece of paper with a diagnosis Mm. on it to be accepted into our community. And so I really love that this study included autistic participants that had a formal diagnosis or that self-identified. And obviously you want to have some rigour and fidelity around the traits of autistic people who are self-identifying. I just love that they included that because I think Given the wait lists at the moment Mm -hmm. to get a diagnosis, it's really important that people are able to feel like they have a sense of identity and belonging in their community. Because I work with kids, obviously in Australia at least, kids go to paediatricians to get yes. diagnosed. Where yep. do adults go? Do they go to a psychiatrist? Psychiatrist, yeah. Okay, that's yep. what I thought. So I have done a few ADOSs recently on clients' mums. So mm. the client comes to me and we do the ADOS and then the mum says, oh, I never thought I was autistic because uh, he was just like me or she was just like me. And that then leads to this kind of beautiful period of neuro-questioning and self-discovery 
And interestingly, it's actually quite tricky in Brisbane. I can only comment in Brisbane, in Australia at this moment, but a lot of psychiatrists are kind of saying, I don't specialize in autism. I'm not the right person to give you a diagnosis. Mm. So actually it's been quite tricky for some of these mums to kind of get to the right place. Mm. But as you say, the community embraces them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know sometimes a piece of paper does help get supports and all of that. Uh, But yeah. 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 That's right. So with regard to the ethics and human protection, at the beginning of the methods section, they acknowledged the study was carried out in accordance with the British Psychological Society's Code on Human Research Ethics and approval was through the University of Edinburgh and the participants provided written consent. So they also had a declaration of conflicting interests towards the end and there were none and they reported where they received their financial support from, which was the Templeton World Charity Foundation. And I, little Googler in me, I quickly (laughs) looked up the foundation, wondering if it was somehow linked to Temple Grandin, but I was Mm. wondering why then they Mm. therefore called it Templeton Foundation. But it's not associated with Temple Grandin at all, but it was actually founded by a very successful inventor and philanthropist, Sir John Marks Templeton in 1996. Oh, he's got a sir. It's very important. Yes, exactly. Mm. I was thinking, Sarah, maybe we should look further afield for grants to help support our podcast. Mm. Um, Because their mission statement says they support work to translate discoveries into practical innovations that enhance our positive and distinctive capacities that are at the core of human flourishing and well-being which is right up this podcast. It's exactly what we do, Mim. Yeah. I'm like, oh, let's apply for a through them. But yes, again, tangent, Mim's tangent. So do you want to take us through the research design? Sure do. So this was a quantitative study and it was a between groups experimental study comparing information sharing outcomes using a diffusion chain paradigm comparing autistic and non-autistic and mixed groups. So essentially, the initial participants in each group were told a story which they recounted to the next participant who then recounted it to the third participant and so on, which is where we get the diffusion chain. And so there was eight participants in each group. So each person in the group had to hear a story and then share it with somebody else until everyone in the group had heard the story. And then the researchers measured how many details of the story had been shared at each stage. So how they collected the data and analysed it. So they conducted the experiment at the University of Edinburgh. So the different group of eight-person diffusion chains, and again, either all autistic or non-autistic or mixed, and the mixed had four autistic and four non-autistic, attended on different days, and the mixed chain alternated between autistic and non-autistic, starting with a non-autistic participant. They also compensated for age-related memory decline by ordering their chains, the chains by ascending age order. And again, I would never have thought of this. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing. Very thorough. Yes. So participants knew if they were in an autistic, non-autistic or mixed chain. And I know we'll cover this a little bit in the mm. limitations, but I thought it might be better to have it blinded. Mm. Yeah. But they didn't meet, none of the participants met before the study and only met each other when retelling the story. Yeah. And so it was only two participants adjacent in the chain. So they only time. met two other people out of the eight in their group. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And there's just a little bit of a quote about the diffusion chain technique Mm. involves examining the fidelity of information as it is passed along linear chains of participants. So by assessing and analyzing the rate which information degrades along the change, the efficacy of information transfer can be explored. And this type of diffusion chain paradigm is novel to the field of autism research, which Mm. was interesting. And we had a really interesting discussion around our family dinner table the other night because we were talking about autistic communication. And for those of you who are long-time listeners, you will know that I have a neurodivergent 13-year-old and um, some of her very good friends are autistic. And we were talking about different communication styles. And I was saying, well, actually, the next research article that Mim and I are talking about is, and then I talked through it. And my beautiful 13-year-old said, so basically it's like they did a massive Chinese whispers 
a massive game of Chinese whispers. And then they measured how accurate it was. And I was like, that's exactly what it was. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, so good. So the article uses the word fidelity a lot. And we asked Dr. Anu about the definition of fidelity in a beautiful Ask Anu section earlier on in our episodes. But for a quick recap, the National Institute of Health defines fidelity as the extent to which treatments are delivered as intended and is considered to encompass adherence, which is the extent to which pre-specified interventions are used and competence, the skill with which they are implemented. And basically, fidelity is about does the study measure what it's meant to measure? As well, they even apply the word to fidelity of did the message that started end up as the same message at the end. Yeah, of so course. They, they apply yeah. the fidelity to the study overall, but also yeah. to the actual story. Message, yeah. And so the message was uh, that they told uh, the Chinese whisper was a 30-point <laughs> story. Imagine doing that with a group of kids, a 30-point story you no. would not get. Yep. Because they usually put poo or farts or something yes. in the middle of that. But yes. um, they told the third, hopefully none of the people, the adults here did, but they told a 30-point story about a bear who went on a surreal adventure and they actually made it difficult to predict on purpose and didn't include any inherent social aspects. Again, amazing design. Mm-hmm. The authors reported the level of readability of the story was age 9 to 10 reading level and through the flesh e-score, it was considered easy to read. I've yep. sort of heard of that. Yep. I think often when you type documents in word they tell you he's he's a reading score yes researchers read the story to the first participant then left the room with the second participant entering and being told the story by the first and so on yeah and the eighth and last participant recounted the story alone out loud interesting it was all yeah i thought it was interesting that mm. they did it alone it was all video recorded for scoring and as we said in the clinical question section, the researchers also wanted to know about the rapport between mm. the participants. So after the participants completed the diffusion chain, they used a 100-point scale to, again, that's a big scale, mm. to indicate their feelings of rapport in five areas. It's very specific, areas. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. were ease, enjoyment, success, friendliness, and awkwardness. Obviously, this last one was reverse scored. Yeah. They then have a bit of research jargon, which I'll quote, just for those people who actually know what it means. Thank you, Dr. Anu, <laughs> if you're listening. I'm sure you know. Uh, the five dimensions had a Cronbach's alpha of 0.71, and so were summed to create a single scale of interactional rapport. Subsequent Bayesian analysis was calculated in JASP. Must be um, some amazing software. But one day we'll understand that. Sure mate. will. Yeah, sure <laughs> will. That's right. Amazing yeah. A summary of the results. This little bit is from the abstract. So it's this two-sentence summary of the results. We found a significantly steeper decline in detail retention in the mixed chains and also a lack of rapport, while the autistic chains did not significantly differ from non-autistic chains. Participant rapport ratings revealed significant significantly lower scores for mixed chains. And so in summary, autistic people effectively share information with each other at the same efficacy level as mm. non-autistic people. And of course, in the results section, as I say, they were so thorough. So they used a lot of statistical terms that I didn't yep. completely understand. I, again, like I did before, I'm going to quote something that seemed important. And again, hopefully people who Mm. know the terms, understand, but it said post hoc contrasts indicated that the non-autistic and autistic chains did not differ from each other, though both groups recalled significantly more details than the mixed chains. It's just that post hoc contrast that Mm. I didn't completely understand. Mm. And they had means and standard deviations and p-values, which Dr. Anu has talked about, but it was basically saying what you said, Sarah, Mm. that the autistic and non-autistic chains, like that were pure autistic or non-autistic were the same, but it was the mixed groups that differed. Mm -hmm. And so they go into more detail of how they statistically measured, but they basically, it was a steeper decline Mm. in information retention for the mixed group. And there was also a decline dependent on where you were in the chain. Mm. So there was a, a relationship between being in the mixed chain group the decline rate according to participant positions so basically 
there was a faster decline. The slide was steeper (laughs) in the mixed group. And if you think about Chinese whispers, if you imagine that there's 30 points in a story and maybe, and I don't know this for a fact, but maybe by the end there was 10 points that people remembered, it seemed that the slope to get from 30 to 10 was much steeper for the mixed group than it was for the other group. They did note, again, it's just amazing how thorough this study appears to me, not as a researcher, but they did say because between the first participant and the second participant in the mixed chain was really a big drop than in the other chain, with the first person recalling less, the rest of the group couldn't really gain that lost information. So they accounted for this by using percentages of the proportion of details recalled rather than the raw number of details recalled. And I guess they could do that because the whole thing was videoed, right? So they could then look at exactly what was said at each stage. Yes. So like the first participant was giving 100% of the study details and then the percentages went down from there. Because they accounted for the reduced start for the mixed group, the results still reflected a statistically significant faster decline in information retention for the mixed group, which is good because if it's like, if there's one dud in your group, you can go, oh, well, maybe it was just that particular group, but they accounted for that particular drop. So again, very, very thorough. Mm, Pretty amazing. Participants were asked how they felt they had got on with the other person in the interaction, which is what Mim was talking about before when she was talking about measurement of rapport. The people in the mixed groups experienced lower rapport with the person they were sharing this story with. This finding is important as it shows that autistic people have the skills to share information well with one another and experience good rapport and that there are selective problems when autistic and non-autistic people are interacting, which is really just summing up Milton's theory of the double empathy problem. I will just go through this. I put in a dot point of how to participants rated rapport they rated rapport with the person who told them the story so that's the precedent rapport and the person they told the story to so that's succeed rapport Mm. so there was significant evidence that the non-autistic and mixed chains differed for the precedent rapport there was moderate evidence the, the the autistic and mixed chains differed for the precedent rapport so there was more difference between the non-autistic and the mixed, but there was still pretty strong difference between the autistic and the mixed for rapport. And there was no evidence the, that the autistic and non-autistic chains differed for the precedent rapport. So they all both got on well enough with each other equally in the autistic and non-autistic chains. Yeah. And then with respect to the succeed rapport, there was significant evidence that the non-autistic and mixed chains differed from for the succeed rapport, which was the yep. same as the precede rapport. Mm-hmm. There was no evidence the, the autistic and mixed chain differed for succeed rapport, which is actually different yep. from the precede rapport. And there was no evidence that the autistic and non-autistic chains differed for the succeed rapport. You can go back and slow that down and listen to it if you really want to. But I just thought it was a nice summary of those differences. Yep. But in the discussion, they start they stayed. Autism is conceptualized clinically and in scientific research by core deficits in social communication, interaction, and emotional reciprocity. Deficits in nonverbal communication behaviors used for social interaction and an absence of interest in peers. And so that's from the DSM-5, and we talked about mm-hmm. what that is from the APA. So that means that those characteristics are used in diagnosing autism. Mm, that's right. Sorry tangent dsm i'd forgotten that it was the statistical manual of mental disorders Mm, mm -hmm. so not very divergent affirming language there no again things take time yeah so the authors go on to report that deficits in social communication should translate in theory into poor information transfer between other people yeah but the authors point out their research shows that this poor information transfer may only be between different Mm. neurotypes Mm -hmm. And in their research, this was paired with significantly lower rapport between the mixed groups. Yeah. So, quote, these results challenge traditional assumptions of autistic social impairment and the findings are inconsistent with the social cognitive deficit narrative of autism. So, yeah. like even the definition and the mm. defining factors of mm-hmm. autism, they're mm. different from. Mm-hmm. And you were talking it lends additional support to the double empathy theory. Yes. Yeah. 
and I love the phrase that they say autistic people are different without being deficient and certainly in my language in my reporting particularly to pediatricians when I'm advocating for a diagnosis for a child I use the term autistic differences and autistic strengths because we know that they're not deficits anymore Mm. we know that they're just differences Mm. I think that's excellent of course like many papers they call for further research and in the mixed chains we know they had the non-autistic person hearing the information first it would have been great they had those three groups it would have been great if they had alternated those but I understand they wanted fidelity in their research Mm. the authors hypothesized that the non-autistic person may simplify information as they might think that's easier for the autistic person they're communicating with and the authors say that if this hypothesis is true then it has implications in the real world so Mm. if autistic people feel they need to simplify information for autistic people they may not pass all the information on we we touched a little bit on this in the last episode but often when people who have English as their native language are communicating with people with English as their second language sometimes they speak louder Mm. but that's actually not helpful Mm. like it can be slower slower, (laughs) but they just automatically speak louder so they think they're helping by raising their voice, but actually potentially they're just giving the other person a headache. Yeah. So again, sometimes we think we're helping when we're like, oh, we better simplify this information mm. when mm. they potentially don't need yeah. that information simplified. Yeah. In terms of credibility of the data, they mentioned the power of the study, which again, Dr. Renu has spoken to yes, us about. I understand that. Bit. Um, and it's 98% power, which means there's really strong credibility in the data. So from the power analysis of the study, they only needed 66 participants, but they recruited 72, which I guess was to have an even number mm. in those diffusion groups. And I wonder too, sometimes if if you want to recruit a little bit more in case of dropout or something happening on the day. They identify some limitations of the study and obviously small sample size, 72 versus 72,000 or whatever, but they did calculate the power of the study and exceeded the necessary sample size. In true form, they acknowledge that it's a small study comparatively. Mm. And we mentioned this earlier, but the participants, another limitations of the study was that the participants knew the diagnostic status of each other. And the authors quote some research, which we've just talked about in terms of do non-autistic people change their behaviour to be helpful to people they've told are autistic, which is, Mim, what you were just kind of talking about above. In saying that, the authors also say that the research shows that sharing diagnostic information results Mm. in greater acceptance of autistic people. So their hypothesis is that the effect may be larger if the participants are blinded to neurotype. And watch this space. We'd love to see some research come out in that. Yeah, and I just thought it was interesting because when I first started reading about that limitation, I was like, yes, knowing you might come in with preconceived ideas. Yeah. But their hypothesis was the opposite. Yes. Which is lovely because yeah. that means that people hopefully have more of an understanding. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. And then the third limitation the authors identified is that the diffusion chains were not equally divided by gender, which may have affected results. They're good at their limitations as well. Mm. They had a fourth mm-hmm. limitation. Mm-hmm. They state IQ was within typical range and results may differ for autistic people with intellectual disability. But I would say it would also differ for non-autistic people with yeah. intellectual disability. And I wondered too, Mim, they assume everybody was a speaking autistic person. We know that there are non-speaking or minimally speaking or autistic people who may not have been included in this research. So I'm assuming they were all speaking autistic people and that this study was all done verbally. But again, I think it would be really interesting to do that study looking at different communication styles within autistic people as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. And their last limitation, which was very statistically (laughs) worded, so I'll just quote a bit, the Bayesian comparison for a poor did not yield especially high Bayes factors when comparing autistic and mixed groups. Further work needs to establish the validity and reliability of this effect through replication across tasks and populations. Specifically, the connection between poor information transfer and lower rating of rapport bears further scrutiny. Does lack of rapport drive Mm. the effects we've seen here or is the mechanism more behavioural? 
for example, due to mismatches in the type and manifestation mm -hmm. of social cues used during the interactional task. Mm. So I think what they're trying to say, well, what they are saying, but I try to understand, is yep. that they can only find a correlational link, yes. a causational link. Yes. So does lower rapport mean that you're less willing to share the information or does the fact that they feel the information is incomplete lead to those feelings of lower rapport? And they just say more research is needed for to determine that. Yeah. Are these results applicable to OT clinical practice? And the authors make a point about application to psychology clinical practice, but it still impacts our work. Mm. They say confirmation of the finding that autistic social difficulties operate solely across the autistic, non-autistic divide could have profound implications for the classification of autism as a disorder in the DSM. We know that non-autistic practitioners need to be aware of the possible challenge to information transfer that might occur in practice. And they also talk about a rising concern about suicide in autism. Mm -hmm. I have heard some really, really sad stats about the life expectancy of autistic people in some countries, which is surprisingly low. The authors report that a key protective fa factor against suicide is a sense of belonging. So the authors quote a study calling for more autistic peer-to-peer -peer support. I also want to do a shout out to my brother in this episode. And he is working for a company called empower autism and he is currently working as the pathways coordinator designing a mentoring program for autistic teens who want to go on to tertiary study the aim of the program is going to be that they will match an autistic teen with an autistic adult who has gone down the path of tertiary study either TAFE or university and that they'll be able to do mentoring with them in order to help them with accommodations and suggestions for study this research in theory is being adopted really fast by some organisations and it's exciting to see. There is also an online mentoring program for young autistic people in Australia and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but a couple of my clients are doing it. Kids aged I think between kind of 8 and 13 or 8 and 14 are matched with an autistic adult. You know, it's really really exciting to see these programs happening. And I would love you to share that on the Facebook group and if we have international listeners I'd love to hear if there's other similar Yes please tell us countries. what's happening in your Since country. You represent 33 other countries. Yes. <laughs> Please let us know. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And the final application and future research the paper talks about, and I'll quote as they word it really well. Uh, again, very impressed by this paper. It says, subsequent research is required to delineate the differences in autistic and non-autistic interaction styles, which will offer practical utility to psychologists, psychiatrists, and health professionals, which includes us. So while replications are warranted, this radical finding challenges the way autism has been characterised for decades, and there are significant and wide-reaching implications for how autistic people are supported in society. So, yeah, beautiful summary there. Beautiful summary. So, Mim, how will we change our personal practice moving forward? I think it's just that communication in therapy with both autistic kids and autistic adults. I think just being, again, more aware of that. So not treating them differently in some ways, not going, oh, I've got a, and so trying to build that rapport. Again, we don't know which comes first, but build that rapport. Yeah. And like we've said before, I think it is about generally advocating for autistic people. So yeah. we talked about dispelling the myth about autistic people not having empathy in the last episode. And so we need to dispel the myth that it's social communication in general, which yes. this research is saying. Yes. So we need to, as professionals, as a profession, and even just as community members, dispel the myth that autistic people have poor social communication yeah. and try to have more understanding when communicating with autistic yeah. adults and kids. To me, at the amazing. front line, I have already made the move away from teaching neurotypical social skills to teaching self-advocacy skills. Mm. And I think this gives me even more impetus and framework to teach autistic kids, teens and adults that their way of communicating is valid and there is absolutely no reason to change the way that they communicate. And for some of my clients, we have started to set goals about finding their tribe. And mm. if we know that autistic people are communicating without differences 
to other autistic people, then it makes sense to help our families and our kids find their community so that they can feel safe and accepted and with a sense of belonging, I guess. Mm. And I definitely, definitely agree with that. Obviously, and you would agree with this, there's always the caveat that everybody is individual. So that doesn't mean we go, oh, there's an autistic kid, you're an autistic kid, you'll get on great. Just of like course, yes. Non-autistic kids don't yes, always get that's on that's right. Yeah, that's and right. Everybody again, has their own personality and temperament. Child. But, yeah, I, th- I think that is a really good summary, but realising, always remembering, and that, that's what I think OTs and other health professionals are, but always remembering having the person at the core. Yes. Knowing whether yes. they're male or female, knowing whether they're autistic or non-autistic, their culture, that all can inform, but that makes them an absolute individual person. Yes. The crux of this article is let's take away the deficit model. Let's take away this model that a lot of us have been taught at university, which is if you have a diagnosis of something in the DSM-5, you are deficient. There is Mm. something wrong with you. And let's take that away. Let's scrap that because exactly as this article said, different does not mean deficient. I think that's a great phrase to end on Uh, so remember we've got our doctor and new section as well and we will continue our theme with the article from our guest speaker yes so Sarah can you let us know a little bit about yeah I would love to so Kate Kleiner is going to be our guest speaker this term she is an occupational therapist and a mum to a beautiful neurodivergent boy Kate's business is raising PDA kids and she runs an online mothers group for mums who are parenting PDA kids. She used to own a really large practice in Brisbane and sold that when she started a family. So I can't wait to have her on. I think it's really Can you exciting. Give us the definition of PDA for those. Yeah, people? sorry. Thanks, Mim. So PDA is pathological demand avoidance and it is an emerging subtype of autism. And the crux of PDA is that kids avoid demands because their decreased sense of safety or a loss of autonomy activates their nervous system. And Kate will certainly give us some much more information on PDA. Mm. I am deep diving PDA at the moment. I have a lot of clients with PDA and I'm doing all the professional development I can. It may be helpful even for us to have a little look at that before we get Kate on, but I'm sure Mm. she will help our listeners understand what it's about. As a shout out to her, Just yesterday, I think, or over the weekend, she released her online on-demand course for professionals, which is about PDA. And I can guarantee you that I will be buying that for me and my team. And so, yeah, we're really excited to have Kate on, I guess, having someone who's an OT, but also we would still love to have someone with lived experience of neurodiversity, (laughs) neurodivergence. So if you are an autistic OT and you're listening, please get in contact with us. But I think just as important is the occupational role of parent in parenting neurodivergent Mm. kids. So to have somebody on with that dual role is going to be amazing. And I can't wait for you to meet Kate Mim and for us to hear us speak just a touch base we've talked about pda briefly before yeah that it's sometimes called oppositional defiance disorder like no so oppositional defiance disorder is uh technically what's in the dsm-5 pda Mm -hmm. is not in the dsm-5 so a lot of kids with odd we suspect have PDA and certainly the PDA society and PDA advocates would love to have PDA replace ODD or at least to have ODD scrapped. But at the moment, that's the only diagnosis in the DSM-5 that fits, I guess, a lot of these behaviours that some people may see as oppositional. There's a lot of advocacy work going on for the DSM-6 in terms of including PDA. And look, I'm on my soapbox, Mim. I could just talk all day about the work that <laughs> I'm doing with probably... paediatricians about advocacy as well. So Yes, we'll you know, probably we'll, talk we'll to Kate chat, about, exactly. obviously we'll, chat we'll about talk that. to her about yep. autism, but yeah, yeah, specifically some of the PDA stuff. I just wanted to give everyone a little bit of a taste because I knew you were passionate about it as well, Sarah. <laughs> but yes. how to get how to get Sarah on her soapbox. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> it's like me and my tangents. I'm, I'm yes. like off here and then you're yes. like up here. Yeah. Like all yeah. soapbox, I'm tangent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Thank we'll, you, everybody. We'll... Thank you yeah, for you coping with our tangents and our soapboxes. We love that you love them. It's time for our Ask Anu section where we ask Dr. Anu Bopti from Monash University a research question to generally expand our knowledge. So we're back with Dr. Anu. It's really great to see you. I hope it's getting a little bit warmer in Melbourne at the moment. No, sadly, no. It's a cold and rainy day. My heat is on and (laughs) it is August and I'm thinking it's end of August. I'm thinking... Where is that warm weather? But you know what? I'm not going to complain. No, the fan's on in my hot. room in yeah. central Queensland. So <laughs> it's better to go swimming. Yeah, I think we, yeah, anyway, uh, no complaining. So, so last episode, we asked you generally about evidence-based practice and we had a great discussion about that, what exactly that involves and the beautiful Venn diagram and the importance mm-hmm. of roles. But I think as well, some of therapists fear about evidence-based practice particularly that the looking at the evidence side is that concern about the delay between research and it actually being clinically practiced like I think that's a fear on both sides researchers are like I've just put all this hard work into here Um, I want the clinicians to listen and the clinician is like I've heard a little bit about this but I don't know if there's enough there to actually change my practice so can you talk to us about that yes and you know with all respect to all the clinicians, because I feel like everyone's trying to do their best all the time. And then let's just talk about why is this gap there and what is this gap? So yes, of course, there's average delay that we all know from all the research that we read that it can take several years and sometimes more than a decade. So around 10 years is considered normal. So which is a good thing, that which means 2013 research should now be active, isn't it? Because it should have been all translated into practice. So there was a lot of wonderful papers that came out in 2013. So I'm hoping that that we are implementing at least that right now. (laughs) But yes, it is is there. The barriers to implementation are due to a number of reasons. So it's not that people don't want to do it. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to do it. Mm. But One is a lack of awareness. A lot of health professionals, once they start working, they may not be aware of what's the latest research, probably because they don't have access to journals all the time. That's number one. That's what they usually tell me. Number two is constraints with time. So in our day, especially with the NDIS, a billing, where is the time to actually go and read research in our build time? So no, there isn't. But we, I always say that ethical practice means that I have to be prepared. But the other thing also, Mim, is there's information overload out there. So, you know, last session, I did tell you about information versus training and information versus, you know, targeted training. So it's good to join journal clubs and groups where they're discussing papers, which is this beautiful research and reality podcasts. Have you yes. heard of that? Thank you. <laughs> but one of the other things is resistance to change. So mm. it's really hard to be able to change from what your established practices are. And I am very proud of my own self. I have probably spent thousands and thousands of dollars on every possible intervention that came out. Because I've been in this um, area for a long time. And nearly all the interventions that I've spent money on are now in the red light zone. So I'm not even allowed <laughs> practice but you know I could have resisted it I could have said I love it my children love it like there's no need to change it because you know we were having so much fun when we were doing those fun activities messy play and all those things that we used to do but so that resistance to change is there especially if the, if clinicians use something for a long, long time. Mm. Another reason could be lack of resources. You really, really want that McMaster handwriting protocol or that you know that the movement ABC is the highest gold standard, but I don't have it. So it is really hard. Or I'm not trained in using co-op or I'm not trained in using cerebral palsy evidence-based research like constraint-induced movement therapy or bimanual therapies. We do acknowledge it's a lot of money. Then inadequate training. So you're not fully trained. You know a little bit of this and a little bit of it. And you'll find numerous OTs who know a little bit of lots of things. Mm -hmm. And so we need lots of those kind of training resources 
The other thing is the culture of the organization where you work. So I know you know all these things. I'm just listing it oh, for no, you. It's good. And it's good all in one place, which is excellent. Like this is the point of the Ask a News. So yes. we can sort of hear it all, all together. So. Yes. So if you imagine like a, a junior OT joining a group of OTs that have don't have the culture of reading research or implementing evidence-based practices, but they have their own way of doing things, it's, it's extremely hard for that person to survive. So either they give in or they leave. That culture is really important that we're all accountable for what we do at every level. We have to advocate all the time. The other problem could be the complexity of evidence. So mm -hmm. Sometimes the findings are so complex and so unclear that it makes it challenging for clinicians to understand. So if it's a relationships paper, for example, there'll be all these Kappa's correlation and Spearman's correlations and Pearson's correlations. And you go, <laughs> what is that? I just give up on this. So, you know, sometimes it's hard. So it's really good, as I said earlier, to join a journal club or, you know, get together with with people who are discussing papers or, you know, go to the podcast that I was telling you before about. Oh, <laughs> and, I wonder what that know. one is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it is complex. And a lot of journals have started doing that meme. They've been asking the authors to write three dot points of the key findings from your mm. research. So yes, I think I found that. I found in some of our articles, there's some excellent like sort of take home dot points and then yes. in one of them I can't even remember which article it had an abstract in sort of professional language and then it had a lay abstract yes um, which was yes. beautiful yeah the abstract in professional language shouldn't be that professional that OTs can't understand yes, it. Like, yes, yes. If you really are struggling do a little training or go and attend there's lots of free courses available online as well like you know from universities that you don't get a credit for but you can go and read up so mm. if you are struggling for example you come across a term confidence interval blah de, blah oh it's too hard just going to go and google it and see what it means and sometimes even I go back and look it up so it's not that all of us know all the different kind of um, statistical analyses that are being done so don't mm. let it deter you from the paper there is a way out and it's called google or <laughs> like yeah well there is there's always something that you know it'll give you or move you towards another paper or a textbook so or it's listen to the ask a new section in our podcast listen to the ask a new <laughs> section or you can you know you can contact people at universities we're very busy but we like to help so you know mm. find your group all of us are part of some group where we're helping a little group or find a mentor or something like that Mm. Patient factors is another thing. So your clients, your patient, we don't use, again, we don't use patient, but we use children and family. So our clients are the children, families, but also teachers. And I know how many OTs struggle with teachers' preferences. Or mm. let me just say this very clearly, doctor's preferences, a pediatrician will always refer for sensory integration. And you look at the child and you go, this child actually doesn't have sensory issues. Yeah, but they put everything in their mouth or they'll say, oh, no, but they can't sit still. So it could be a number of reasons. And so what happens then is your practice is getting dictated by somebody else who has a preference of what they think should be followed. So like I keep going back to the pediatricians and I say, we do more than sensory for children with autism. They don't spend the time to listen to what we're saying. So we really need to get stronger at what we advocate upwards. So, mm. so what do you tell the teachers as well? So the teachers very often will think that OTs are there to help with either handwriting or with sensory. And there's other things that we help with, for example, all childhood occupations. We also help with whether they can organize their desk get ready for school, whether they can follow what you're saying, the instructions, whether they can complete a task. So these are things, executive functioning, we help with impulsivity that children show. So we can help with lots and lots of different aspects. So it is that those preferences that don't allow you to change your practice because you are so comfortable and everybody's expecting that Mim will come in with a bag full of toys and sensory things and she'll do her thing and she'll go. And so if Anu comes in without the bag, then she's not a good OT, is she? Because she doesn't have all those things that Mim has. Anu may be a very good evidence-based practitioner, but everyone is expecting her to do what Mim was doing. So I'm just giving an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. So that's what you have to be careful of. It's really hard when 
because I have lots of new graduates that come out of uni and they come back and write to me that, yes, you did say that lots of people are using non-evidence-based stuff, but how can I tell my boss <laughs> that they're using something that's not evidence-based? So it's really tricky. Other reasons for a lack of evidence to reach a practice is financial incentives. So there's nothing available for people who are following evidence-based practice versus who are not. I mean, to some extent, I think NDIS has that you can't claim, thank goodness, certain things. I know that OTs are claiming lots and lots of therapies that probably would not make it on the evidence system. They'll, again, organizational problems. For example, I was talking about the autism therapies that are evidence-based, but right now there are barriers because of very valid reasons that we're not meant to use them. And I agree with those as well very much. Finally, just being aware of the research practice gap, that it does have a gap. So first gap is between when you conduct the research and when it comes out. Yes. So for example, right now, the papers that I'm writing, I actually, you won't believe this. I actually just put a paper in that where the data was collected in 2013. Today's to 2023. And yesterday I submitted it. It was still relevant, but sometimes it takes that long for the data to go out from your research and into turn it into a paper then now it won't even go the journal is going to look at it and send it back to me and say these are all the revisions you need to make so by the time it comes out it'll be another six months mm. so first gap is between when we conduct the research to when it gets published and then the second gap is when that published research can actually in the real world clinical settings how can it be feasible to implement I'm just going to use this as an example because it's evidence-based. Say you want to trial biomanual therapy for children with cerebral palsy unilateral. Is there enough people who've learned that in your clinical setting? Is your clinical setting feasible to follow that? Are you able to actually check whether the family has, like all the families have that capability to follow through? So these are real problems. And so you may know that that's one of the highly evidence-based therapies, but you're having so many issues in implementing it. I think there's lots of efforts to bridge this gap and they include knowledge translation, which we could talk at some other time, but it's a real big one that's coming out is how do we translate knowledge? But there are things that you can use our clinical guidelines or best practice guidelines in early childhood intervention. I was a co-author on those ones, the best practice guidelines. And continuing um, education programs. I know OT Australia offers lots of programs, but really be mindful who is offering the program and really is that evidence-based. So you need to make that call or you can ask someone else, is this a good program for me to spend my $800 on? Join collaborative networks, join researchers and clinicians and groups like that. One of the other groups that I'm a board member of is PRACI, which is Professionals and Researchers in Early Childhood Intervention. So we are a group that's come together. Our goal is to bridge that gap between professionals mm. and researchers. Our goal is to stay within the early childhood intervention space and provide deliverables, not just articles, but we have research snapshots, we have webinars and things like that. Go and find those, ask others what are they using. It does require a bit of thinking, a bit of planning, a lot of people to come together. And I wish it would be pushed from top down, but it's not. So it's really up to us to you know form our groups while we're uh, communities of practice is a really big mm. word that's coming out everywhere and are we part of those communities you can't do too many things because then you'll get run down you'll get burnt out to just pick up something and I like research and reality your podcast for that reason is it picks up a topic and then it tries to you know collect a few papers on that and discuss that so that's a real nice way of chipping away at research mm, no that's excellent and I think one thing that we will talk about in the future like some really specific ways of implementing research into practice but I think that would yes. definitely be yes so we'll have probably another yes yes so and we can call it knowledge translation because that's mm. that's what the term we're using a lot and you can go and look it up it's KT or knowledge translation and there are a few steps so maybe next time we can talk about that meme yeah that sounds wonderful well thank you again for your time it's always so interesting just listening to you and your passion 
former <laughs> research, but also your passion and experience in the clinical realm. So you're perfect, perfect mix for this <laughs> thank podcast. You, and thank you for the plugs for our own podcast. Well, <laughs> well you know, that that's the reason I jumped on your podcast, because I think where I'm in my career is like, we need to really translate knowledge. Mm. So it's a real good way for me to share a few minutes with you. Thanks, mm. Mia. No, that's excellent. And we will talk to you next time. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, email us if you like at researchandreality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news, www.facebook.com slash research and reality OT. That's research A-N-D reality OT. And get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. You can also become a Patreon supporter. This podcast takes time, so if you'd like to support us, you can. When you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well. For $10 a month, get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. You can sign up through Patreon by going to patreon.com slash researchandrealityot.com. That's researchandrealityot.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us, and engage with the Research and Reality podcast.